Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click Ratings and Reviews. You can also follow me on Facebook.com slash RunPaleo or on Twitter at RunPaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Jeff Folick. Jeff is a low-carb researcher at the University of Connecticut. He has written numerous books and papers on the advantages of a low-carb diet. Some of his books include The Art and Science of Low-Carb Performance, New Atkins for a New You, and Men's Health TNT Diet. Jeff, thanks for being part of the show. Uh, Great to be here. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah. So, Jeff, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get started with this low-carb approach? Well, that goes back uh, almost 20 years ago. I was training as a dietitian. And, uh, of course, was taught um, more or less the uh, tenets of the dietary guidelines and and low-fat diets and so forth as the most uh, healthy approach. And uh, and that more or less reflected my diet as well. I, I uh, thought a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet was the most healthy approach, both for uh, improving general health as well as optimal performance. Uh, and I was also uh, into experimenting at the time. Uh, this would be in the early 90s and just decided on a whim uh, to try the Atkins diet. And I was quite shocking at how positively I responded to it. And I've really ever since that time period, I've been more or less obsessed with <laughs> learning as much as I could about the diet. And that eventually led into conducting research in the late 90s and really up to the current uh, time, I've uh, been doing uh, as much research as, as I can to understand how people respond to, to low-carbohydrate diets, both in terms of clinical applications as well as uh, improving performance and recovery in athletes. So you said at the time you, you were just interested in experimenting. Were you overweight? Were you ex- interested in the athletic side of it? What What specifically made you want to try the Atkins? Yeah, for me, I wasn't, um, you know, trying to lose weight. I've never been overweight, but I was trying to improve my body composition and just have more energy and and perform better. Mm -hmm. I was uh, competing in powerlifting and weightlifting more at that time in my life, and uh, and so uh, so I've never, you know, really had a problem with with weight, but my response was um, more more uh, dramatic in terms of losing body fat and, and, and improving my body composition and having more energy and, and, and recovering faster. So some of the more uh, maybe uh, emerging roles of the diet outside of the traditional use of, of the diet for weight loss. Okay. So you mentioned there that you were into uh, powerlifting competitions. A lot of times we hear that a low-carb diet won't work that great for intense uh, activities. What has your experience been with that? Well, as a powerlifter, uh, I had no problems uh, training and competing uh, on a very low-carbohydrate diet. Uh, the you know the volume of work I was doing was not uh, extensive as a powerlifter. I you know we were training at perhaps a maximum of six repetitions so it's quite uh quite low volume but high intensity 
uh, type workouts. So, uh, so that type of work uh, I felt wasn't compromised at all, and and there was a, a real benefit in maintaining uh, a lean physique and maintaining a, a, a weight because I was you know, competing in a weight class, so it was easier for me to stay close to my competition weight during training compared to some of my uh, my colleagues who were you know, training at 20 pounds over their weight class and then they would cut weight. I pretty much stayed at the same weight and felt that was a much easier, healthier, uh, effective way to uh, to train and, and compete. Mm-hmm. So in your most recent book, uh, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance, that's the one that really kind of got me interested in, in this. You talk about replacing carbohydrates with fat for energy. A lot a lot of people might think that's kind of counterintuitive, that if you eat more fat, you're going to stay lean. How does that work? Well, I think the, the whole idea of a low-carbohydrate diet is one that's based on metabolism. When when you restrict carbs, you're forcing your body to burn fat for fuel. And whether you're an obese person, really your problem is you have, you're carrying too much fat in your adipose tissue. So that's in fact what you want to do is increase your ability to burn fat. And even if you're an athlete, I think there's many advantages to switching your metabolism over to burning fat relative to carbohydrate. And the most effective way to do that is to restrict carbohydrates in your diet. When you're consuming carbohydrate, you're essentially locking your body into uh, a carb-dependent metabolism. Okay. Carbs are, you know, carbs are a stimulator of insulin, and insulin in turn inhibits your body's ability to access its fat stores and utilize that for fuel. So the more sugar and the more starch you consume in your diet, the more you promote a carbohydrate oxidation and simultaneously you're inhibiting your body's ability to burn fat. Mm -hmm. So as you keep on, on a higher fat diet, you keep your insulin levels low, which allows you to access this whole extra storage tank of fuel that we call fat. And uh, whereas if you're on the higher carb diet, your insulin level is constantly high and, and you're having to burn, which is forcing you to burn carbohydrates. And and that in turn stimulates hunger. Am I right? Uh, that's right. And and you know there's a lot of variability in the way people respond to carbs. But in general, that that's correct. Uh, you know the the carbohydrates are are in many ways highly reinforcing, and so they're. they're they're also contributing to overconsumption of calories in many cases, and this is why uh, you know many people get into this type of um, addiction type response to carbohydrate that leads to overconsumption of food and calories. Okay, so some people have said that we we might need small amounts of carbohydrates, but isn't it true that your body, if it needs any extra carbs, it can produce them from fat and protein? That's right. Uh, there, are, there is no essential carbohydrate in the diet that, that we need. So our bodies can make glucose from non-carbohydrate sources through a process called gluconeogenesis. And there is an obligate need of glucose for some cells in the body, but that can easily be met through gluconeogenesis. So from a dietary perspective, there is no essentiality associated with carbohydrate. Okay. Yeah, as an endurance athlete, one of the things that really piqued my interest after reading your book was this idea that for long-distance activities like a marathon or an ultra-marathon, you wouldn't have to constantly be fueling your body, which for me had led to a lot of gut issues during a race and you know having to stop at the porta potty halfway through and stuff like that. Whereas when you're eating a higher-fat and a lower-carb diet, it allows you to access that stored fat 
that you, know, you can carry that with you anywhere. You don't have to be constantly shoving uh, gels in your mouth to keep your energy level up. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's worth talking a little bit more about that for for your listeners because. Uh, in many ways, uh, you know, this comes down to a fuel issue. So, you know, if you look at fuel stores in the body, uh, in humans, we don't store much carbohydrate. We have maybe 2,000 kilocalories worth of carbohydrate in the form of glycogen in our muscles and in, in the liver. And when that when that's gone, uh, you know, your performance tanks. Uh, you know, that's that's basically called hitting the wall or bonking, mm-hmm. and more or less due to uh, a fuel crisis in your brain. So the brain, when you're eating carbohydrates, it's a glucose-dependent organ, and when there's not adequate glucose, um, it's shut down. So uh, you know, the idea behind a low-carbohydrate diet is you can uh, become more efficient at burning fat. And the irony is, even when you hit the wall, you, you're out of you're primarily out of your carbohydrate stores, but but you actually have even the leanest athlete has more than forty thousand kilocalories worth of fat. Mm. And yet they still hit the wall in fatigue. So the problem is they, even though they've got all that fuel in their body that they could potentially use, they can't access it mm-hmm. unless they've gone through a period of keto adaptation where they've trained their bodies to be more efficient at burning fat. And that, you know, so this idea of adapting to a low carbohydrate diet uh, essentially um, trains your body to primarily use fatty acids and ketones for fuel. And that gives you access to that much larger uh, reservoir of fuel in the body in your fat stores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, in, in our experience uh, working with a lot of endurance athletes, uh, they essentially become bonk-proof. Mm-hmm. They don't hit the wall because their brains are not dependent on glucose. Uh, the brain can, can use primarily ketones for fuel. And so they have a much larger fuel source. And as you were saying, there's less requirement uh, to have to fuel during exercise with gels and and other uh, fast-acting sources of of carbohydrate because their bodies can can tap into their their own fat stores for fuel. So it's a much more stable and sustainable fuel source during these long-duration ultra-endurance type events. Okay. You know, I was really interested in this idea of keto adaptation and it's it's the, from what I understand from your book, and tell me if this is right, but the brain needs to run on glucose unless you've adapted it to running on ketones. And what, what your body can do is use fat to make a fuel called ketones, and then that allows your brain to, to fuel with an alt- alternate fuel source. But unless you've gone through an adaptation period of a higher fat, lower carb diet, your body won't pro- be producing those ketones. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that, that's right. And this, you know, this is metabolism uh, that's been worked out uh, through elegant experiments going back into the 60s and 70s, and this has primarily been studied in the context of starvation, uh, where uh, where you also produce a lot of ketones, but you also produce ketones when you uh, restrict carbohydrates but have calories in the diet in the form of protein and fat. So it's the same type of process as starvation, but, uh, uh, but you have fat coming in in the diet as well. Uh, but but you're exactly right. The brain can adapt to using ketones, and the other cells in the body can also use ketones and as well as fatty acids, and and these become the primary fuels. And so this process of keto adaptation is actually a very elegant uh, system by which the body maintains near perfect metabolic control 
uh, all the organs get all the fuel they need, including the brain, uh, despite the fact that no carbohydrates are being consumed. Okay. And, and you know, and this is something that, from an evolutionary perspective, we've evolved um, over the course of human history uh, to be able to, to survive rather long periods of starvation and, and, and uh, periods where we've had little access to carbohydrates. So, you know, being able to adapt to using ketones, especially the brain, is, is a critical adaptation uh, during the evolutionary process, especially for Homo sapiens, uh, which, you know, our, we have one unique aspect of Homo sapiens is our large brain, and that probably wouldn't have occurred if we couldn't adapt to using ketones. So this is a very natural phenomenon to uh, to use ketones. In fact, the majority of human history, that it's very likely that that was the primary fuel source that allowed uh, humans to survive and thrive. Okay. Okay, so you talked about there this more kind of evolutionary perspective. Have you looked in much to the paleo diet and how and what they've been saying? And, and is that similar to a low carb diet? Well, you know, I guess there's many definitions of low carb diets and even different uh, perspectives on paleo diet. Uh, so I, you know, I hate to simplify um, the, the the large amount of views on, on paleo diet, but in terms of just basic science and, and, and metabolism, uh, there uh, is a strong case that can be made uh, that humans uh, can adapt in a very healthy way to removal of carbohydrates from their diet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're not talking about something that's really controversial here, uh, that uh, the body has this, uh, has these pathways, uh, let's put it that way. Uh, it's just that they're constantly being silent when we're eating a substantial amount of carbohydrate in the diet. So a paleo diet makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. I think most paleo diets would. Uh, whether or not a paleo diet restricts carbohydrates to a level that allows the body to produce ketones, I think that that's one uh, element that uh, there may be some differences of opinion about uh, because a lot of paleo diets allow enough carbohydrates that it doesn't uh, allow for a significant amount of ketones to be produced. And so you would miss out on, I think, an important adaptation that allows for a um, certain amount of health benefits and perhaps performance improvement uh, by having ketones elevated. Okay. So um, let's talk a little bit about the health aspect to this diet. Um, Some people might be concerned that if they start eating fat and specifically saturated fat, that it might clog their arteries. What do you say to that? Well, that's been a primary uh, area of interest of mine from a research perspective, uh, we've actually done a lot more work on the clinical applications of these diets and how they affect risk for heart disease and diabetes. Uh, And in particular, um, I've been interested in saturated fat. That's one of the major barriers to sort of accepting a low-carb diet is that it has a higher amount of saturated fat in it. So so we focused on that over the last 12 years, and I've published extensively on cholesterol metabolism and other other, uh, risk factors and vascular outcomes associated with with, uh, humans that have been on this diet. And I guess to um, you know to sort of provide an overview of that that research is there's no indication that the diet impairs uh, metabolism in a way that would increase your risk for heart disease. All the lipoproteins get uh, get better. Your 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 small LDL particles go down. Your triglycerides go down. Your HDL increases. 
Uh, your inflammatory markers go down, your blood pressure improves, uh, your glucose levels and insulin levels go down, your hemoglobin A1C goes down if it's elevated. Uh, and so, uh, you know, from, a, from just a standard health risk profile, everything improves when you restrict carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And yeah. probably one of the more profound uh, uh, responses we've seen is that uh, saturated fat levels in the blood actually go down despite the fact that you're eating sometimes two or three times the level of saturated fat. Hmm. And that sort of blows people's minds because we tend to believe you are what you eat. So, uh, And this has also been the basis of dietary recommendations for the last three decades is that you know, we need to restrict dietary saturated fat. But it's not dietary saturated fat that's a problem. It's saturated fat that accumulates in your body, either in your your, uh, your arteries or if it's in your uh, different lipid fractions of your blood. That does increase your risk for heart disease. But as I was saying, those levels actually go down when you're on a low-carb diet. Yeah, that's really what interesting. You, eat, you are what you save from what you eat. Mm. When you're on a low-carb diet, that saturated fat that you're eating is actually a preferred fuel by the body, and, and, and thus it's being promptly converted to carbon dioxide and water mm. through metabolism. And it's hard to imagine fat and saturated fat being harmful if your body's promptly converting it okay. to fuel that's being oxidized. Uh, and so, uh, so we, you know, we published three studies in, that all essentially have shown the same effect that saturated fat levels go down when individuals consume a low-carbohydrate diet. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned all those markers that are typically used to um, evaluate whether someone's at risk for a heart disease. And I know um, I tried this uh, very low-carbohydrate diet for about six weeks, and I I had I work at a lab, so I had my my markers tested before and after. And prior to going on the diet, my Triglycerides were around 90, and afterwards they were around 45. And uh, that I, from what I, and my HDL went up as well. And my, I think it was my C-reactive protein was was uh, undetectable a- after going on the diet. So it was really interesting to see. It's and it's kind of fun to see how all these risk factors actually do improve. You know, well, for someone like me, and it sounds like for other people who have tried the diet. Yeah, your response is, is, is very typical, and in fact, uh, in, you know, you started at very healthy levels, and you still observed uh, additional improvement, but the effects are even more dramatic in individuals who have high triglycerides uh, or have uh, higher levels of inflammation. Uh, you see even more dramatic improvements because they're even more carb intolerant, so, so they're... Uh, there are individuals who uh, are more suited for this diet, or, or I should say, they actually require this diet uh, as a uh, you know as a strategy, as opposed to others where uh, you know you may be tolerant to carbohydrates. Um, you can still adapt to a low carbohydrate diet, but you probably do pretty well on high carb as well. Uh, but there are individuals who don't do well at all on high carbohydrate, and they need to restrict carbs in order to uh, to maintain health. And that's the, where this issue of variability and personalization of diet really becomes important. And so it's really people that are insulin resistant that um, by, by the very nature of being insulin resistant, they are carb intolerant. And so if you're intolerant to a nutrient, it just makes intuitive sense that you would restrict that nutrient, just like if you were lactose intolerant or gluten intolerant. So if you're carb intolerant, uh, uh, things tend to get better. And in some cases, such as type 2 diabetes, they get dramatically better when you restrict carbohydrate. And how would someone know if they're carbohydrate intolerant? 
Well, they'll they'll tend to show a lot of the markers of metabolic syndrome. Uh, I mean, type two diabetes is you know the 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 hallmark of that disease is carb is insulin resistance. So they're the most insulin resistant and carb intolerant individuals. But you also have pre-diabetes and metabolic syndrome. So high triglycerides, low HDL, high fasting blood sugars and insulin levels. Uh, high blood pressure and uh, large waist circumference are the standard markers of metabolic syndrome. But it's some other subjective markers might be, you know, if you're uh, really sensitive to uh, a high-carbohydrate meal uh, and experience a subsequent low blood sugar where you get really tired an hour or two after you eat lunch or a high-carbohydrate meal, that's an indication you might be carb intolerant. Or if you're gaining weight on a high-carbohydrate diet or can't lose weight on a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet, that might suggest you have some carb intolerance. So those are, I mean, some basic ways you you would know. Uh, but it's a really interesting question and one that uh, you know, we've been trying to identify novel biomarkers that we can look at in individuals to, to know what their level of carb intolerance is and then track that marker over time to be able to customize or tailor their individual carbohydrate uh, intake at a level below their carb tolerance. Mm. You know, one of these, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit that we can go after in this bigger, uh, you know, concept of personalized nutrition and personalized medicine is personalizing the carbohydrate intake to the individual. And it is quite variable. And okay. even within the same person, it changes over the lifespan where, where people who could metabolize carbs when they were younger sometimes struggle when they get into middle age and older. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in the book that this is an anti-inflammatory diet. What does that mean? Well, we've uh, shown in a couple uh, studies uh, several inflammatory markers go down. Uh, you mentioned CRP is one that uh, has been looked at quite commonly in studies, and it's a very good sort of global systemic marker of inflammation. That tends to go down, but you know, inflammation is, is actually quite a complex process in the body, and, and it can be measured many different ways. So we've looked at other pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-6 and different adhesion molecules, and we've shown an array of these pro-inflammatory cytokines uh, decrease on a, on a well-formulated low-carbohydrate diet. So there seems to be less basal uh, inflammatory status in individuals. And we know that that's an important risk factor for many diseases, not just heart disease, but diabetes and probably cancer as well. And most other chronic diseases are associated in some way with this chronic constitutive inflammation. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about what someone would eat on a daily basis if they wanted to try this diet. Um, what are some of the food, common foods that, that you have around the house for snacking and for meals? Well, if you're restricting carbohydrates, say, to uh, below 50 grams per day, uh, you know, a lot of people think that that's very restrictive and would result in a very bland, boring diet. But I, I can't emphasize enough how much variety you can still have in your diet. So um, you have to kind of break that 50 grams up into different food groups and so forth. Uh, I eat a lot of vegetables. Of course, avoiding the, the starchy vegetables like peas and corn and carrots and so forth, but a lot of uh, salad vegetables, all different types of leafy vegetables and non-starchy uh, uh, sources of vegetables. Uh, of course, the protein-based foods, so meat, you know, beef, chicken, fish, uh, and so forth. There's all sorts of varieties of those uh, protein-based foods that can be consumed. Um, even some fruits, uh, berries in limited amounts, uh, 
and avocados, tomatoes, olives are all botanically fruits uh, with relatively low carbohydrate, less than 10% by weight. So in moderation, those can be included in the diet. Uh, uh, of course, oils and, uh, you know, when on, a, on a low carbohydrate diet, when fat intake is so high, it's important to have the right types of fat because uh, the fats are being used as fuel. So you want fats that are preferred fuels in your diet, and those are primarily the monounsaturated and saturated fat sources. So you want to avoid uh, the high amounts of polyunsaturated fat, which would be your soybean oil and corn oil uh, and uh, safflower oils. Uh, so I focus a lot on olive oil, uh, coconut oil, butter, cream, uh, are my primary sources of fat in the diet, in addition to those that are contained in, in the protein foods and beefs and so forth. Okay. Uh, a lot of nuts and seeds. Uh, so, I mean, there's quite a bit of variety, you know, there in terms of preparing daily meals and menus. Uh, you know, in our research, we've got very um, detailed menus. We've been involved in long-term feeding studies where people have been on low-carb diets for months, and it's highly palatable. Uh, they enjoy it. Uh, it's very, you know, satisfying and pleasurable for for people. In fact, they prefer that over high carb diet in many cases, not most cases. Yeah, yeah, I found that too. That it's it's I it's a diet that I really enjoy eating. It's um it's much tastier than having a big bowl of pasta. I think um uh and it's been really easy to follow. And and I think as you after you start it, your taste buds change a little bit, and you start to crave some of those higher fat foods like butter, cream, and sometimes I'll put some cream in my smoothies, and um and it just tastes so much better. Yeah, I think you're right, uh, and, and, I, and I just want to emphasize that, you know, I sometimes don't emphasize this point, and I talk more about the science and the health benefits, and, and people inevitably come back and say, well, that's great, but nobody can actually stay on this diet, and it's boring, and, and again, I say, no, it's exactly just the opposite. Uh, uh, once you've adapted and you kind of learn um, different preparation techniques and what foods you can consume, that um, it's full of variety and full of uh a pleasure and satisfaction, um, despite the fact that, yeah, you do have to give up the starches and the breads and the potatoes and the pastas and so forth, but that's hardly a sacrifice when you can eat all these other foods. Mm-hmm. So it's not as, you know, draconian <laughs> as some people originally think when uh, when you tell them, well, yeah, you got to give up bread. They, they tell you, well, there's no way I can do that. After a couple of weeks when they've been on the diet, they're like, bread, who wants bread? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you mentioned protein in there and a lot of the paleo style uh, eaters go for the grass fed. Do you feel like that's an important uh, thing to do on this diet? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you can afford it, that, that, that'd be preferred for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it just tastes better as well. Okay. How about fueling during um, competitions, like a marathon or half marathon? Um, do you have any, I, I mean, would someone carry a packet of coconut oil or do you have any suggestions for people out there? Well, that, yeah, that's an interesting question because uh, we haven't studied this um, scientifically. There haven't been a lot of studies that have addressed uh, a low-carb diet in, 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 in endurance athletes, let alone, you know, pre-event, during-event uh, uh, forms of supplementation. And, and commercially, there's very little out there 
uh, for athletes to do who are paleo or low carb, um, everything is sugar based, uh, gels and, and sports drinks and so forth. So, um, uh, you know, I, I've just found anecdotally what, what athletes tell me they're doing and, uh, experiencing some success with, uh, uh, are just taking their own, making their own sort of, uh, pace out of nuts and seeds and uh, and using that, carrying that along with them and using that during an event. But they okay. need to consume much less total calories during an event compared to if they're fueled on carbohydrates. So, you know, whereas you might be consuming carbs every 30 minutes or so during an event, um, it's much less frequent when you're in a fat-based metabolism and able to tap into your own body fat stores. So there's much less pressure to have have to refuel uh, uh, during exercise when you're in a fat-based metabolism. So that that's important for these ultra-endurance athletes because uh, they get into a lot of trouble when they have to slam so many gels. And, and in a lot of people, it really tears up their GI tract, and there's a lot of issues with vomiting and, and so forth uh, that go away when uh, you switch them over to a low-carb, fat-based metabolism. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing I've found that's really valuable. I know I did a just a 20 mile training run about uh, six weeks ago and, and I didn't have any carbohydrates or anything to eat and I felt fine um, and I was moving at around a seven minute pace and that was so fun to do because I, I didn't have to worry about planting uh, gels or taking things along with me and uh, and how my stomach was going to feel after eating those so that that's really been helpful to me. Yeah, and another aspect we've been hearing a lot of feedback about is just the ability to recover faster when when they've switched to a low-carb diet. And that's fascinating um, to hear as a scientist and trying to understand what might be happening physiologically and metabolically. And uh, It appears that when you're burning ketones for fuel, uh, you're generating less reactive oxygen species. And this has been worked out in some very basic science uh, experiments where they've shown ketones do generate less free radicals that you know, ultimately cause damage to membranes and other cellular components. And so uh, so burning ketones and fatty acids for fuel uh, seems to be more efficient. You get more work done and produce less waste products. And I think this carries over into recovery from exercise as well. And another fascinating paper was just published in Science, you know, one of the most prestigious science journals um, back in December of 2012, uh, that really laid out an elegant series of experiments showing that ketones act as epigenetic modulators of gene expression. Hmm. And in this case, they upregulated a, a whole host of genes, antioxidant genes, and protected against oxidative stress. So this is, you know, kind of an advanced paper, but it really showed conceptually that ketones were acting independent of their effects as fuel as regulators of oxidative stress. And I think this is really relevant for athletes who are doing high-volume work and consuming a lot of oxygen just to, to perform the exercise. They're generating a lot of free radicals that their bodies have to absorb. And, and in many cases, if, if they're not protecting against all that oxidative stress with their antioxidant defense system, you know, that affects their ability to recover. And so it seems like ketones and fatty acids are uh, much cleaner burning fuels and, and produce less damage uh, after exercise. Mm-hmm. So we, we are aware of athletes that are, you know, running 100 miles on back-to-back weekends. They're not just completing those races, but in a couple cases, uh, uh they're setting PRs and setting course records. 
so it's, it's, it's fascinating in this ultra-endurance world. Uh, there really does seem to be an increasing number of athletes using some version of a low-carb diet to train and compete and do it yeah. very well. Yeah, that idea of keeping free radicals <clears throat> to a really low level is is really interesting because a lot of triathletes and runners will be out in the sun for, you know, for a training run, maybe three or four hours, and they've got the sun beating down on them. And um, I know Ben Greenfield was on uh, a few weeks ago, and he mentioned that he thinks that some of that uh, damage from the sun could be could be due to, or the, the wrinkles that a lot of ultra-endurance athletes have could be due to their high-carb diet uh, because of all the... Um, I think it was called uh, AGEs that are formed from a high-carb diet. Do you think that that could have any effect on something like I wrinkles in your skin? Yeah, I think it's a really <laughs> provocative uh, hypothesis uh, because more and more we're, we're learning uh, that when you're emphasizing a glycolytic high-carb uh, oxidation that you're generating more reactive oxygen species. And, you know, and that causes the uh, advanced glycolation. That's basically, you know, causing oxidation of, uh, of, uh, of different proteins in your body. Uh, like hemoglobin A1C is one, just one example. But uh, these ROS don't just randomly attack different uh, cells in the body. They specifically go after highly unsaturated fatty acids in your membrane. Mm. So uh, we actually have evidence now that those particular fatty acids like EPA and DHA on the omega-3 side and arachidonic acid on the omega-6 side are decreasing after uh, ultra-endurance events in athletes. And they seem to decrease less in athletes that are on a low-carb diet. And so this this has important implications because arachidonic acid, for example, is a very important highly unsaturated fatty acid in membranes that is associated with insulin sensitivity, for example, okay. and a variety of other health effects. So some of this gets very complex, but it really, again, comes back down to uh, emphasizing either a carb-based metabolism or a fatty acid and ketone-based metabolism. And it just seems more and more the basic science, as well as a lot of the applied work, is, is showing uh, a fatty acid-based metabolism is a healthier way to go. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, that you know, a lot of that work is being done in the anti-aging and the life extension work, where at the cellular level, a lot of the, the key signaling mechanisms involved in extending life and and so forth are the same pathways that are being upregulated when you're burning fatty acids and ketones. Oh, that's fascinating. So all this, you know, really sort of ties together into a nice story mm-hmm. um, because the bottom line is in athletes, we don't have uh, a lot of the really well-controlled studies that we would like to be able to answer some of these questions. Uh, but metabolically, it, may, it makes a lot of sense that you know, if you can train your body to, to more efficiently burn fat and ketones for fuel, that that could have a lot of positive effects, not just on performance, but on recovery, uh, as well as cognitive ability, too, uh, uh, which may or may not be important for some athletes, but certainly uh, in many cases, you know, you need to perform cognitively as much as you do physically. And, and so there seems to be a, a more constant fuel supply to the brain that results in a better ability to focus and better mental function during during exercise. Okay. So well, interestingly, about- the military is very interested in this, and in fact, so much so that they have uh, invested $10 million in uh, developing uh, ketone esters that could actually be consumed as a food, almost a fourth food group, 
so, so actually eating ketones as opposed to producing them in your liver as a result of restricting carbs in your diet. And, and they've, uh, they've actually developed the ketone esters and tested them in uh, toxicity studies and have moved into human trials. And some of the preliminary data are pretty impressive. That's interesting. And another way to get ketones in your diet is to eat coconut oil. Is that correct? Right. Uh, coconut oil has a, a significant amount of medium-chain triglycerides, which uh, which bypass the normal uh, regulatory steps that long-chain fatty acids uh, do to be oxidized in mitochondria. So they, they basically uh, convert to ketones much quicker. And uh, and so eating coconut oil or just straight MCT oils, um, you know, is a fairly easy way to, to elevate your ketones. Mm-hmm. How about some tips for beginners? You know, when I uh, tried this diet, I, I was experiencing some cramps in my legs that I had never really experienced before. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons I started adding some carbohydrates back into my diet uh, because of the cramps. What What are some common pitfalls that people run into and what could have I done to avoid those leg cramps? Well, specifically cramps, uh, you know, most cramps uh, are, are, can be tracked back to uh, magnesium de- deficiency in cells. So I'd, I'd highly suggest you try a 21-day course of slow mag. Take uh, take two pills a day for 21 days and see if the, your cramps don't go away. Uh, it, it works quite uh, quite well in, in most people who have cramps, not just athletes, but a lot of obese people have magnesium deficiency and they have a lot of problems with nighttime cramps. Uh, it often gets misdiagnosed because you can't just measure magnesium in somebody's blood uh, because it's primarily intracellular. So uh, so if your magnesium's uh, low, it won't necessarily be detected in a blood test. Uh, so the only real way to know is to actually go through a, a course of, of supplementation to see if that uh, alleviates your cramping. But, but one of the... Um, one of the other uh, common, uh, uh, I'll say, uh, areas that people sort of trip up with when they attempt a low-carb diet is uh, they don't uh, supplement or uh, add additional salt in their diet. And one of the um, uh, adaptations to restricting carbohydrates is your kidneys secrete more or excrete more salt. Uh, and this has been well documented. Uh, it's called the naturesis of fasting or the naturesis of carb restriction. And when your kidneys excrete more salt, they also excrete more fluid. And for an athlete, if, you're, if your plasma volume is reduced and you try to go out and exercise, um, you may have a rough go of it if you have a, a low circulating volume. And this is why a lot of people might complain about fainting or headaches or fatigue uh, on a low-carb diet. Um, and they often blame it on the lack of carbs, but in most cases, it's due to low circulating volume. And if they would have replaced uh, that extra salt that they excreted, uh, in most cases, those symptoms go away. So it's usually, you know, it's it's a, uh, only about a gram or two of salt, but it's it's important to make sure you add an extra gram or two in your diet if you're restricting carbohydrates. Okay. And that's oh. another tough sell because in addition to, you know, sort of blaming saturated fat for all the problems, we also blame salt for a lot of problems. So not only are we encouraging people to eat that, uh, we're also encouraging people <laughs> to eat more salt. Uh, but it, it's it's very important in the context of low-carb to, to make sure you add that extra gram or two. And an easy way to do that is just have broth. 
uh, a bullion cube, which is about a, a gram of, of sodium per cube. Mm-hmm. Okay. Training, it you know makes sense to have one of those doses 30 minutes before you exercise. Okay. How long is it going to take for someone to adapt to this kind of diet? I mean, it's not the t- kind of thing where you can just try it one day and see how it works, right? You've got to do Absolutely, it for... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it, it, uh, you know, it takes probably two or three weeks um, for most of the adaptations to occur. And, you know, some people have a much easier transition. Others takes a little longer. And, uh, you know, the, if you really look at the whole process of keto adaptation, it's a very complex process. So it's hard to put a specific time period on when someone is fully adapted. I, I tend to think there's even further adaptations that occur after three, six months based on talking to a lot of athletes who've done this. But clearly it takes a week or two. And the first week can be particularly rough. And so you need to be aware of that if you're going to try this, that you don't want to try and set some kind of record (laughs) a few days after you're into the diet because uh, uh, you're likely to have a really hard time. Uh, So you need to kind of maybe back off on the training a little bit during the first week and let your body adapt to switching over to burning fat ketones before you really start to pick up the training again. And and just be aware of that and, and, and recognize that that's part of the adaptation process. But most people, once they've been through a couple of weeks or a month, find that they've not only you know, returned back to their normal training, uh, but have exceeded their training capacity and are able to do even more work. Mm, wow! So, so the you know the keto adaptation is, is a process that you know, does require at least a week or two. Uh, that may be longer for some of the adaptations to occur. Mm-hmm. And kind of the magic number that you point out in the book is most people need to keep their carbs to around 50 grams or less a day. In in order to start producing some of those ketones that they can use for fuel. Is that still what you would recommend? Well, that's a ballpark, and uh, you know, everyone's a little different. Most people, if they restrict carbs to less than 50, will, they will elevate their ketones above one millimolar. But some people may require less than 30 grams. Uh, mm. Some athletes who are very carb tolerant and insulin sensitive might be able to consume more carbs okay. and still be in ketosis. And that's why we actually advocate if you're if you're really trying to get into a state of ketosis to actually measure your blood ketones. And there are devices to do that relatively easy from a finger stick. But at least that way you know uh, you know if your ketones are elevated or not, and, and you can use that information to adjust your diet accordingly. Mm-hmm. Either It's not just carbohydrates in the diet, but um, protein is also anti-ketogenic. So a lot of uh, athletes are restricting carbs quite low, but they're still not in ketosis and they're frustrated. And in many cases, it's because their protein intake is too high. So you have them back off 5, 10 grams on the protein and maybe increase their fat. Uh, and that puts them into uh, you know into a state of ketosis. Okay. Uh, and so there's some fine tuning that that needs to occur often. And the only way you really can do that uh, accurately and efficiently is to to kind of have that information. So um, so knowing your ketone levels, I think, is very helpful, if not empowering, to to kind of know how, that your body's burning fat. Yeah. I, I you guys mentioned um, a ketone meter in the book. <clears throat> excuse me. That I actually went out and bought, and that was kind of fun to see um, the how my ketone levels were changing as my diet was changing and it's it's pretty easy to use and it's it's not that expensive for the meter itself but then the test strips are around a dollar a piece but uh you know once you start testing you can kind of figure out what level of fat you need to eat in order to generate those ketones so that that was right yeah yeah i mean that's exactly right you may need to use it a little more often um at the beginning but you're you know usually after a 
a month or so, you, you learn what types of foods you can eat and still maintain ketosis, and you may not need to test as often. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, <clears throat> it's been very interesting talking with you today, and I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with our listeners, and hopefully people will benefit from this. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Aaron. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.